0: Good morning, please be seated. Let's pray and then begin the sermon. Heavenly Father, for this season of Lent, open up our hearts through your Spirit and help us to engage with your words, Father, and through that change our lives powerfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, we are going to continue our series on the Ten Commandments. And we are going to look at the Second Commandment. But before we get there, I want you to think of these two things. The first one, if you visit my grandmother, you will find in her prayer room various idols to Hindu gods. However, nestled between the elephant-faced deity and the goddess of wealth, you will find a picture of Jesus. When my grandmother prays, sometimes she will pray to Jesus. And give him an offering of milk and fruits. Since she has a picture of Jesus, is she worshipping God? Now, consider the second scenario. We saw in the Old Testament reading today that Israel made a golden calf and worshipped it. Now, if you think that they are so stupid to worship a pagan god after witnessing all the miracles that God has done in rescuing them from Egypt, think again, because in Exodus 32 verse 4, Aaron stands before the golden calf and declares to the gathered Israelites, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So to Aaron and those gathered to worship God, this is the God who has rescued them from Egypt, the God of Moses and Abraham. So if their intention is to worship God and the golden calf is just a focus for their mind to come to God, is it really wrong for them to do that? Now, these are questions that I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we come to the second commandment to see what it teaches us. The second commandment can be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 to 6 for those who want to see the text for themselves. And it reads, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a calf image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now as we read this, we can see from verse 4 a prohibition that we are not to make calf images or any likeness that is in any form or representation or illustration of anything that is in heaven above, the earth beneath, and the waters under the earth. The heavens mean no celestial objects, no sun, no moon, no constellation. Earth means no picture of animals or plants. And the waters means no pictures of fishes and maybe octopuses. In fact, taken together, this says that we should not have any pictures of anything that God has created. So, anyone here has a photo of a person or animal at home? Have you broken the second commandment? The text simply says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, right? So is it wrong then to create or to have any sort of representation of the things that God has created for aesthetic reasons? Here it is important to look into the whole counsel of God and interpret scripture in light of scripture itself. Now when we look into the amount of details that God supplies in describing the aesthetic of things to be displayed in the cultic worship of Israel, such as the displays in the tabernacle of angels and palm trees, the pattern on the robes of Aaron was to be decorated with blue, purple and scarlet pomegranates and golden bells, and the cherubim that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant and so on. God even inspired and gave talent to the artists in the time of Moses so that they will be able to craft these things with skill and beauty. So clearly, God is not against art and beauty. God is not against the appreciation of his creation. So we can conclude that God is not against the use of those things for us to appreciate. So what's the issue then? This is where we need to read on to the next verse to get the context. The first part of verse 5 reads, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So you see, this is the issue. We can have these images and pictures if it is for art or for, for appreciation, but we are not to bow down or serve them. That is, we should not worship them. But that leads us to another question. If I take out my phone and show you a picture of a cute dog or cat, what are the chances that you are going to fall down and worship it? Hopefully nobody said yes. Things in nature by themselves do not have an attraction for us to worship them. However, when people come to idols and worship them, they're not doing it because they have seen a representation or something that inspires them with awe of God's creation, but rather, people worship idols because people have somehow in their hearts come to ascribe a spiritual efficacy to that particular figure. We worship because we believe that we will gain something from it. And we believe that the idol will give us something if we come to it in the right manner. And this mindset can present itself in many ways from things that we can clearly see as superstitious beliefs to maybe even things that we unconsciously hold on to or follow what those before us have done. In St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, There is a statue of St. Peter, and if you look at the foot of the statue, you will see that one foot has been worn smoothed by the multitudes of people who come there to kiss or rub the foot for good luck. The irony of this is that most of the people who came to that statue for good luck are actually on a religious pilgrimage seeking to draw closer to God, yet they end up committing the very idolatry that God's command forbids us from doing. Now you may say, "Hey, but it's just rubbing the foot for good luck, Dinesh. How is that idolatry? When we come to that statue and we think that by touching it, it will give us good luck, we have ascribed to that statue something that only God can provide. So at that time, when you're touching that statue and hoping for good luck, you're not relying on God to be the author of your faith. You want the statue to provide you something extra that at that moment, you feel God is not giving you. You want control over your faith, so you choose to believe that the statue can help you, which reveals that you don't trust God. And that is idolatry. When you desire something else above your desire for God, then that something else becomes a replacement for God and you have created an idol even though you may not realize that actually you are worshipping it. And friends, this works on many levels even on things that are good and these things can get twisted because our hearts are naturally an idol factory that keeps on manufacturing idols. Now, I'm keenly aware of where I'm standing now How rife with Christian symbolism everything here is. Behind me is a stained glass window depicting Christ and Mary. There are various crosses and symbols of Christianity all around us. Now, as far as helping us to remember things about our faith... These are not bad things and can be helpful for some people. It brings us to mind of things that we have read about in the Bible and they serve the function of deepening our appreciation of this as we come together to worship. However, for some people, especially those who tend to place a lot of value into the experience of church, there is a danger. The good desire of appreciation for these things can slowly over time change into a form of idolatry. Let me explain. Imagine one day the roof of this building collapses and we cannot use this hall. Then we decide to have service at the car park and we'll all go there and we all sit down and we have a service under the tree. The same liturgy is used, communion is shared, the Bible is read and preached, the congregation is gathered together, and we sing hymns and spiritual songs together. Would you feel that you did not worship God? Would you feel unsatisfied with that worship experience and after a few weeks decide to go to another church where you'll have the buildings and all these things around you? If you feel that way, then actually we may have made the church experience into an idol. And then we think that this particular place is special beyond what it is. In fact, there may even be those who ascribe something extra about this hall. We may think that God is dwelling as a localized presence somewhere over there. Now, this is the house of God in the sense that his family gathers here and where his people is gathered, he is there with them in spirit. But God is everywhere and this is not the Old Testament temple where the Spirit of God came down and dwelled with the people. The Spirit of God now dwells within the believer and not in a building. We do not worship God as a specific place. We worship him in spirit and in truth. So to think that there is a special power here in the hall is then to think more highly of the building that God intends to. And by doing that, we ascribe a particular power to the place rather than to God. In some churches, people will remove their shoes when they come up when the communion table is laid out. And if they are doing that because they think that this particular place is more holy than the rest of the building, if they do that because they are thinking they are trying to emulate Moses before the burning bush and they are saying this is holy ground, that is not, then there is a danger of us taking things too far and we may be worshipping God in a manner that he has not preserved. However, if you do that, because you feel, hey, this is the respectful way to come and take communion. Or if you do that because you think, this is like having a meal at my father's house, and you take off your sandals, then that's perfectly fine. It's a good thing, isn't it? So the point is, we can't judge things by what people are doing, but only by what they believe deep in their heart. To worship God in such a manner that we heighten other things that he has not allowed us to do is not pleasing to God. Because then we are not worshipping him in the correct way and instead look to serving these things for the hopes that we have. The sons of Eli did this exact same thing in 1 Samuel when they carted the ark before their enemies in order to use it as a talisman. They had hoped that the magic of the ark will vanquish their enemies like in Jericho or the many times that the ark has saved the people. And the mindset that they had did not go well for them. They saw the ark as a talisman that will give them victory but without God's blessing the ark was just a wooden box. So my point here is that while the second commandment is talking about images and statues, we want to see that the principle of it can extend to almost anything that our heart puts its trust in. This can be sacred sites, it can be church building, it can even be your Bible or the people that you meet. And outside of the church context, We can even worship the idols of our career, not realizing that the money and stability that we get from our career actually ultimately comes from God. Or we can worship our children in the sense of putting all our hopes for our future and well-being in them instead of the Lord of all creation. I can go on but you get the idea. Anything can become an idol not just calf images or pictures. Now, besides us ascribing something more to created things that should only be given to God, there is another important point behind why we have the second commandment. And this we can see through the events of the golden calf. Now, as I explained earlier, the people made the calf in order to worship God in the same way that the pagans around them worship their God. The Israelites pictured God, young, virile, full of strength and vigour, and the choosing of a bull is meant as a form to compliment him. They would have expected him to be pleased that they chose such a strong and powerful symbolic means of expressing their opinions of him. However, we see that God considers this an abomination. So why is that? In presenting God as a calf, the Israelites has actually misrepresented him. To present God in any form based on his creation is to declare that God is like something in his creation. But in fact, God is spirit. He is invisible, eternal and almighty. And so there is nothing to be found in heaven and on earth and under the earth that can adequately represent him. In John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Therefore, attempting to represent him is to wrongly relate to him and it means to work against his revelation. So look again at what the Israelites did. They took God, the omnipresent, omnipotent, the creator of all things, the all-knowing one, and they presented him to the world as a cow. If God's purpose in salvation is so that his glory can be revealed to the world, if God's purpose is for mankind to come to know God, then it goes against the whole plan of God For men then to mould God in their own image and present that to the world. And so this is why it's a bad idea to try to portray God who is invisible and his spirit in mankind's own vision. Think of Michelangelo and his painting The Creation of Adam. God is pictured on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel as a bearded old man. And this is where this idea of God as an angry bearded man sitting up in the cloud that people who don't know God will use to make fun of him. And as good as Michelangelo's intention may have been, he has represented God in an inadequate manner. So how then do we come to God and worship him if we can't have images as the focus of our worship? Well, Remember my grandmother and her picture of Jesus? Firstly, we want to acknowledge, right, it is right for us to focus on Jesus to worship God because Jesus is God who came down in the flesh and he is the perfect image of the Father. And that's why Jesus told Thomas that if he has seen Jesus, he has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect imprint of the radiance of the Father. And that's why the disciples can rightly bow down and worship Jesus and it is not idolatry. So yes, worshipping Jesus is the right response for those who want to come to God. However, when we look at what my grandmother is doing, she's actually not coming to God Almighty when she prays to Jesus. And the reason for this is because she does not know Jesus. She has not read a single verse from the Bible She has no idea what Jesus has taught his disciples. She doesn't know who Jesus is. Now, I love my grandmother and I would be the first person to rejoice if she has come to Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) However, the Jesus that she claims to worship when she prays in her altar is unfortunately a Jesus that is made up in her own mind, in her own image. It is a Jesus that if offered some milk and fruits will grant her wishes and bless her. Her Jesus is no different from the other idols that she worships <coughs> even if she identifies it as the Jesus that Christians pray to. <coughs> Excuse me. This is because she does not know of the true Jesus and instead has made up her own idea of what Jesus is. The only place where she should have gone to find out about Jesus is not to that picture that someone gave her, but actually to God's living word in scripture. Because it is in scripture that we come to know God. Scripture drives us to know him and worship him. Our God is a God who reveals himself through his holy word. The Jesus that she knows is not the Jesus of the Bible. And that's why her worship is not one that is acceptable, even if she has what she genuinely believes to be a picture of Jesus. In doing what she did, she has taken the God of all creation and sought to tame him into a God that serves her. Now we who know Jesus from scripture can look at the exact same image, be reminded of him and worship him in our hearts and that will be okay even though the image of Jesus is just an artist's rendition because we are not worshipping that picture but rather we focus our worship of the to the Christ of scripture that we know of. And so that picture should not become a holy relic that we ascribe powers to. Now, while this establishes that having a picture of Jesus at home to help you remember him is not wrong, we want to remember that as fallible humans, we have a tendency to associate and ascribe our hopes into physical objects instead of remaining spiritual. So that means... In seeking to have a picture to help us worship, we start to draw very close to the same heart that the pagan worship the pagan worshipper has. There is danger that unwittingly we make the image into an idol. This was what happened when the Israelites decided to follow the pagan idea and decided to make the golden calf. Thank you, Andrew the golden calf, so that they will have a visual representation of God. So this is more of a caution rather than saying flat out, you cannot have a picture of Jesus. If there's no need for it, it's better for us not to rely on pictures of Jesus, but instead come to scripture to get the true picture of Jesus to help us worship him. So it's better to read your Bible to help you pray, rather than to have a picture of Jesus before you. Now, having established all of this, there's still the other part of the commandment. From the second half of verse 5, we see, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. And here we see that God is a jealous God. Now, this sounds wrong on the surface, right? Because we often think of jealousy as something sinful. However, the context here is of a right desire to keep that which is only his and not wanting to share it with others. Imagine a husband. His wife comes home and she says, I'm going on a holiday to the beach and I'm bringing a male colleague from work with me. We'll be gone for a few days. The right response is for the husband to be jealous and not allow it. And he probably needs to work on his marriage as well. God is our God. We are his people. And he desires us to be faithful to him. So this is why God does not want our hearts to give his worship to anything or anyone else apart from God. Thus, God's people are reminded to not to try to worship him based on what they want to make up, nor are they allowed to worship him as if he is a created thing. If they do worship idols, that is they worship in the wrong way, then that sin will not only affect them, but also the children of up to the third and fourth generation. Now at this point, we may be concerned, God doesn't seem to be fair. Why should the children be punished for their parents' sin? And I think what's happening here, this is rather pointing out about the effect of sin on the later generation. An abusive father will traumatise his children. They may grow up abusive or thinking violence is the way to deal with children. And they may turn out badly. And they may affect the lives of their own children. And even if they don't turn out badly, the trauma of being abused might make them do something else They're sinful. So in the same way, we see that sin begets sin and the pattern that we set influences the later generation. So worshipping wrongly by relying on mute idols instead of the living God will have consequences on the children. And so I don't think this is a promise saying, if one strays from God, all their descendants are going to fall. Right? My parents are Hindu idol worshippers, but God showed mercy to me. So we know that this is not God saying, regardless of what you have done or what you think, if your parents or grandparents have committed adultery, I will punish you, right? So it's not saying that. So the idea here is, when we worship wrongly, we will be led to sin, and that wrong sinful heart of worship then we lead our children and grandchildren astray. So let me explain this with an example. Come back to the golden calf, right? Imagine if God then had closed one eye, let the people worship however you want, I don't care. What would have happened? Well, the people worshiped the golden calf, they came, they offered sacrifices, then they sat to eat and drink, and when they had gotten intoxicated from that drink, they rose up to play. Now, most Bible scholars agree that the term rose up to play is a euphemism for having an orgy, as the pagans did when they worshipped their God. Right? In pagan practices, sexual acts is part of worship. And the people, since they have started to mimic the pagans in the way that they are worshipping an idol, naturally went the whole mile. So what would the people of Israel be like if that is how their worship pattern was set? Every Sabbath, they will go before the calf, they will worship it, and then get involved in orgies. Then imagine their children and grandchildren, how would they turn out growing in that worship culture? Will they be able to hear what scripture talks about? The limits of sex, the faithfulness required of that one-man, one-woman relationship that the Bible teaches? Or will they then just look to their parents and say, no, I think this is okay? They may not be able to worship God rightly because they are following the footsteps of their parents and grandparents. But of course, some may choose to reject the wrong things that are being done and do the right thing, right? So really, it depends on their response to their parents and grandparents. And that's why we see that there's kind of two categories here. Those who follow in the elder sin, in verse 5, named as those who hate God, and those who, in verse 6, who are called those who love God. So to those who hate him, God will judge them. Yet for those who love God and keep his commandments by not turning to idols as their parents had, they will be shown steadfast love by God. So we see here that this is not just a warning, don't go into idolatry, but it's also an encouragement. Persevere and worship God rightly. The way to do it is by listening to him and keeping his laws in the context of their worship. This then is the conclusion of the second commandment. So we can take away these points as we continue to think of the second commandment. Firstly, we must not turn to idols, but put our whole trust in God. Secondly, idols are not just carved images, but are things in our hearts that can lead us to place our trust, hopes, and desires in. Thirdly, we must worship God in such a way that we do not misrepresent Him. Fourthly, this is serious business. And God takes it seriously because it can have severe effect not just on us, but also on our descendants, even to the third and fourth generation. So my friends, this season of Lent, please do think about how we have been worshipping God and identify if we have created our own idols which we are coming to with our trust and hope let us then strive to worship only god to trust only him to desire only him above all things and then to take everything else and put it in its place let's pray heavenly father we thank you for what we have learned today and we may have unwittingly father put hopes ascribe efficacies to things We may have committed idolatry without knowing it. And so we ask you today, Father, please help us to realize and repent so that we may choose to worship you rightly, so that we may glorify you in the right way. And help us to learn and help us to grow and forgive us of our errors, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.